It's good to be with you again this Lord's Day, and good to have an opportunity to follow up on last week's sermon just a little bit. We don't want to leave you hanging or sitting on the edge of the mysteries of predestination. We want you to know what the purpose of predestination is about, and that's what we will explore today. If you weren't with us last week, or if you were with us and already forgot, remember we took on the scariest word in all the Bible, the word predestination. And we saw that predestination foundationally means that God has always loved you and has a wonderful plan for your life. But what does that plan look like, practically speaking, in the day-to-day experience of your life? What does God want you to do with the time he has given you? In his wonderful book, Finding the Will of God, Bruce Waltke makes an argument, a convincing argument, that trying to find the will of God is not a Christian notion, but it's actually a pagan notion. And he makes that argument because he says that the will of God is not some mystical secret that only the spiritually elite and erudite can discover or find through certain techniques. But the mystery of God's will is actually an open secret. It's something that God has already revealed to us in his word. And the ultimate purpose of God for your life is that you will be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And the way God goes about Conforming you to the image of Jesus Christ is by working through a variety of means. He works in your life by his spirit and by his word, by the sacraments, by the pastors and ministers he puts in your life, by your family and community, and even by the circumstances of your life. These are all means that God uses to bring about the ultimate purpose for your life to accomplish his will, which is to conform you to the image and likeness of his son, Jesus. Now, Waltke goes on to say that that takes hard work, total devotion, and a commitment to serve God's purposes rather than our own. It seems rather like mission impossible. And left to our own devices and vices, it would be impossible for us to accomplish all that God has prepared for us. But the gospel tells us that God works in our lives by various means to guide us to the glorious end and purpose that he has for us. God loves you, and he has a wonderful purpose for your life in Christ. And God's ultimate purpose for you is to shape you into the image of Jesus for the praise of his glorious grace. And I hope that as you think about the doctrine of predestination, that this is the message that will come to mind, so that that doctrine that is so beautiful and so mysterious will no longer be a scary or ugly doctrine in your heart and mind, but perhaps one that brings you great comfort and joy in knowing something truly and deeply and beautiful about the love of God. So in light of all of that, I hope and pray that you will come to see this doctrine in light of God's glorious grace and love. Now, my purpose today is not to re-preach the sermon from last week, but simply to bring us all to the same place so that we can launch into 
another aspect of this that often gets overlooked. What is the purpose of predestination? It's not just that God predestines the end of your life, but he also predestines the means to that end. In other words, predestination invites participation. God wants you to participate in the life of divine grace. He wants you to participate in his love, to be involved in his mission, to be an active partaker of the good things that he has for you and for the world. And this is a part of this doctrine that we need to embrace today. So instead of just thinking about predestination, let's think about participation. Participation. God inviting us into his purposes. One of the things we saw last week, and this hooks into what we will see today, is that predestination is a life-giving doctrine. Not everyone thinks of it that way, but that is how it is presented in the scriptures. It is a life-giving doctrine because the story of the gospel shows us that God predestined people who were dead in their sins to become living saints. The scriptures tell us that God takes no pleasure in the death of sinners, but he takes great pleasure in raising sinners from death to life. That's why we're here today. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, and in the power of the resurrection, God made us alive in Christ. And here we are. Why does God do this? Why does he take such great pleasure in this? Ephesians 2.7 puts it this way, that this is how God shows the immeasurable riches of his grace in Christ towards us. This is how God shows the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Now, depending on your Bible translation, the word immeasurable or the word incomparable, or the word incredible might appear. There might be some other variation of that word as translators try to decide how to translate this Greek word that means to throw beyond or to go beyond by tossing something. Our English word hyperbole comes from this Greek word. And if you don't know exactly what hyperbole looks or sounds like, then I would encourage you to gather at Lone Star Cafe Wednesdays at noon with the older men of our church and listen to their stories as they try to tell the truth with lots and lots of color. If you've ever been around them telling their stories, that you can tell that hyperbole is the name of the game. And as they say, the first liar doesn't have a chance. Hyperbole is a way of exaggerating something for the sake of emphasis. But when it comes to the grace of God, we see that God's grace expressed in kindness is so extravagant that it seems exaggerated. And so Paul is telling us that there is something hyperbolic about God's grace in kindness displayed to us in Jesus Christ. It's almost too good to be true. We have a hard time putting our hearts and minds around it. Hyperbole is beautifully expressed here in the grace of God. And here's how it comes out. That God's love and God's grace is so powerful that it changes the world. 
to use the terms of our theology and the terms that we find here in Ephesians 2, God loves to take people who are totally depraved by sin and radically transform them by grace. God loves to take children of wrath by nature and make them children of mercy by love. He loves to take the worst that the world has to offer and to turn it into the best that heaven can give. So what is grace exactly? You might have heard many technical definitions of grace, theological definitions of grace, but to put it in very simple terms, just drawn from Ephesians 2, we would say that grace is God's redemptive and creative expression towards sinners. God, God's grace is his redemptive and creative expression towards sinners. That's what grace is. Unmerited favor, yes, and all of that. But here we see that it's a gift. And that's why the Spirit says, getting to our passage today in Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. The gift of God is not from works, so that no one might boast in themselves. Why? What is the reason for this? Well, for like the gift of God, we are the workmanship of God, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared in advance or beforehand in order that we should walk in them. So think of what Paul is doing here. He is combining God's creative and redemptive work in Christ And he's drawing on the story of the scriptures, bringing it to fulfillment in Jesus and tying together various themes. And so we hear echoes of the creation story that just as God made Adam from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the bread of life and sent him on mission, the creation mandate, sent him on mission into the world. So now in Christ, God has come to us. And he's reworking our ruined lives, reforming our lives by his crucified hands and giving us special purposes in the world. We are God's workmanship. And as the prophet put it, we are the clay, you are our potter, we are all the work of your hand. The Greek word for workmanship sounds like our English word for poem. Some translations will say uh, handiwork or masterpiece or creative work. Some say workmanship, as our translation does. But they're all trying to get at the same thing. They're trying to demonstrate that we are specially created by God in Christ. We're not accidents. We didn't just evolve into who we are. We are special creations of God in Jesus Christ. You think of a masterpiece, and what do you think of? You think of the greatest work of art produced by an artist. And if you spend any time in the art community or any time in our culture, then you likely will think of da Vinci's painting of the Mona Lisa or of the Last Supper. You might think of Michelangelo's sculpture of David or of the Sistine Chapel. Masterpieces. The greatest works of art that our human artist can produce. 
And to that, Paul would say, but you're so much more than that. You're so much more than a portrait. You're so much more than a sculpture. Those things depict life, but they're not alive. They're artsy, but they're not alive. And you are alive in Christ. So the point that the Spirit through Paul is making here is that we, as a part of the church of Jesus Christ, are poetic and artistic expressions of divine grace and love. We embody that power in our life. We embody that work in us. Why? Because we are new creations. Recreated in the image and likeness of Jesus by the life-giving power of the resurrection. We're different than what we were before. Our nature has changed. Our purpose has changed. We were dead and now we're alive. That's a massive transformation. And this is what God's work looks like in us. We are God's workmanship. And that means more than we're just a cleaned up and improved version of our old selves. In fact, it doesn't mean that at all. We are God's workmanship, which means we are new versions of ourselves remade in the image and likeness of Jesus. Sin dehumanized us, and grace rehumanizes us in the image and likeness of Christ. And as the Spirit works in us, working God's work in us, we work out what God works in. So in the context of Ephesians 2, the Spirit through Paul is telling us what we, as the workmanship of God, are. And I don't just mean what you as an individual are, or what I am, or what our congregation is. I mean, more globally, what Christ's church in all locations and in all generations is. We're all a part of that. Christ is the foundation, the, the cornerstone. The apostles are the foundation. And we are the living stones that the Spirit of Christ is putting into this building project. We're God's workmanship. And we're called to participate in the life and the work and the mission of God in the world. So hear this loudly and clearly that predestination leads to participation. And if it doesn't lead you to participation, then something is wrong with the front end of that doctrine. It must lead to participation because this is what God has called us to. Now there are... Many examples of what this workmanship looks like, but to take away the guesswork and keep us from speculating about what God's workmanship is, let's just listen to what the Spirit tells us it is in His Word. So I'll give you four examples of this. We are God's workmanship, and that means that we are a new family. It also means we are a new temple, it means we're a new body, and it means we're a new community. It might mean much more than that, but it certainly doesn't mean less than that. And so as you make your way through the book of Ephesians, you would see all of this come to the surface as we ask, what does it mean to be the workmanship of God? What does it mean to be a living masterpiece or an artistic and poetic expression of God's grace? Well, it means that we are a new family. 
Later on in Ephesians 2, you hear this language, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. God's building something. He's building a family. As God's workmanship, we are a new temple. I alluded to this earlier. Let's look at it more clearly now. Again, at the end of Ephesians 2, we see this. The whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Christ, you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So again, we see God is building something in the world. He's building something in your life, using you as a living stone, fitted into his temple, fitted into this cosmic temple that he is building up in Christ by the Spirit. Why? Because we become a dwelling place for God in our little corner of the world. As God's workmanship, we are a new body, a new body. Paul says in Ephesians 3 that the mystery of the gospel is that different ethnic groups, the Gentiles or the nations, are now fellow heirs and members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ through the gospel. There's no room for racism. There's no room for social injustice. There's no room for people pitting themselves against each other on the basis of the color of their skin or their socioeconomic status or because of which nation they came from or which tribe or which people. The church and the temple that God is building is global and universal. And he's drawing people from all nations and tribes and languages and fitting them together into one body Not one body politic, as if we are trying to decide if we're liberal or conservative. But into one body that is connected to the head, which is Jesus Christ. The body of Christ in the world. More on that in a moment. As God's workmanship, we're a new community. And this community called the church is sent, according to Paul in Ephesians 3 sent to make known the manifold wisdom of God to, he uses this language, rulers and authorities, but he means the angels and the demons and other spiritual forces in the celestial realms. In other words, God is revealing something of his eternal purposes to heaven and earth and under the earth through the life of his church, through this new community that is working out the grace and love of God in the world. So we're God's workmanship created in Christ, but not created in Christ simply to be these trinkets and doodads that sit on shelves and sort of look pretty. We're created in Christ for good works. We're being called by God and invited by the Spirit to participate in the grace of God in the world. To bring the love and the life of God to people around us. To display to the world who God is in Jesus Christ. So again, we're not just works of art on display in some cosmic museum. We are active participants in the life of God and the work of God in the world. And this is for the life of the world. So again, predestination leads to participation. 
Yes, we were predestined to be adopted as God's children and made a part of his family. But we were not predestined to become spoiled children sitting around getting fat and sassy in the house of God. He's called us to purposes, to send us out into the world as representatives and participants of his life in the world. So he has a wide variety of good works for us to walk in as his children. In other words, we have a chore list, and there's a code of conduct, and there are expectations for living in the house of our Father. And Jesus, our brother, is the one who shows us the way, and the Holy Spirit helps us do these things. I love how Eugene Peterson expresses this passage in his um, interpretation In the message where he says, God creates each of us by Christ Jesus to join him in the work he does. The good work he has gotten ready for us to do. Work we had better be doing. I think that captures the spirit of what Paul was saying. So what are some of the good works that God has predestined for us to walk in? Well, if you've been around churches long enough, then you might think, well, it's probably whatever the pastors dream up. You know, those, those are the good works. And we hope and pray that the works that we invite you to participate in are reflective of what God has revealed in his word. But to be on the safe side, let's just listen to what the Spirit says in his word. We don't have time to get into all of it today, but I would encourage you to read and reflect on Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. If you just want to see in black and white terms what God expects you to do and how he expects you and your family to live, just spend some time reading and reflecting on those things. The Holy Spirit is very clear and takes away the guesswork and speculation by showing you this is how you should live. These are the good works that God has prepared for you to do. Now, I do want to draw on Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 and give you a, just a taste or a little flavor, a few examples of what I mean so that perhaps you'll be encouraged to go back and reflect on that in your own time with your family. But think about what it means. We're God's workmanship. We're a new family. We're a new temple. We're a new body. We're a new community. What does the Spirit say through Paul about that in the rest of this letter? Well, here's an example. As a new family, our families, our individual families, ought to reflect God's family. In other words, God's family ought to shape and inform our families and help us to grow in the image and likeness of Christ as a family. So we're called to be imitators of God as dearly loved children. And if each and every one of us in our individual families are pursuing this imitation of God in and of ourselves, then we're going to be changed. And then eventually our families are going to be changed and we're going to better reflect the grace and love of God in our world. Paul moves on to talk about marriages. Think about this. The Spirit tells husbands and wives to love and to respect each other sacrificially in imitation of Christ and the church. Now, all of our marriages reflect Christ and the church in some way. And some days are better than others, right? We've all been there and done that. 
It's a struggle, and the struggle is real. But we're called to do this together as we imitate God and live out what it means to be a good family, or to be a godly family uh, that reflects the grace of God, is what I mean. And so marriage itself is a graphic depiction of the mystery of the gospel. And if you've been married for 30 seconds, you know that marriage is a mystery. It's not just a mystery in itself. It's a mystery of the gospel, which makes it even a bigger mystery. But by mystery, we mean open secret, showing us something about the gospel. What are some good works you little children can do? And if you're not so little children, children still living at home with your parents, what are some of the good works you can do? Well, Paul makes it very clear, little children, you must obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. And there's a promise attached to that, that if you obey your parents in the Lord, things will go well with you. You'll live a much better and happier life on the earth. So trust the Holy Spirit on that. Don't put the Lord to the test. These are just some of the good works that we are called to do. And the point I'm trying to make here is that our families should tell the story of the gospel of God's grace in some form or fashion. Secondly, we're a new temple. We as a congregation are a new temple. And we're not the only temple. There are many temples of the Holy Spirit scattered throughout this city, throughout our region, the nation, throughout the world. But we're a part of this. Our congregation ought to be a center of worship in our community. God dwells in the church on the earth by his spirit. He's with us today. His presence abides with us. And that is why the spirit tells us to be filled with the spirit as we draw near to worship God. Why we're called to address one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Why? Because this is a way that we sing and make melody to the Lord with our hearts. It's a way that we give thanks to the Lord for everything. And it's a way that we draw near to God with gratitude in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. It's a way that we display our reverence and awe of who God is. We are a new temple. We make up bits and pieces of that temple. And each and every one of us is important to the Lord, is valued by Christ, so much so that he gave his life to make us a part of this temple that God is building. Our worship should tell the story of the gospel of God's grace in our corner of the world. We are a new body the church is the fullness of Christ in the world, an extension and a representation of Christ on the earth. When you have some time, think about that phrase, that the church is the fullness of Christ in the world. How often in your life have you been someplace and thought, I just wish there was more. There's something lacking about my church. There's something lacking about the Christian community. The rise of evangelicals is alarming to many people, but they didn't see the fullness of Christ in the church. They felt that something was lacking. And yet the Spirit says, no, everything that Christ is and all that he has for the church is in the church. 
because we're connected to the head as the body. And this is why the Spirit tells us to walk in a manner that's worthy of the calling to which we have been called. And that means to live in the world with all of the virtues of Christ on full display. Humility and gentleness, patience, tolerance, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. It takes effort, it takes work to get along with people who are different from us, who are other than us, who are not like us and not as likable as us. But in the body of Christ, we're being fit together as members, vital organs of the Lord Jesus Christ. So our pastors and teachers ought to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and come to a true knowledge of the Son of God until we reach spiritual maturity. We need to keep growing. Why? Because the Spirit says when each and every minister and member is working properly, this makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. It's the same love that predestined us to be adopted into the family. And it's that love that is on full display in our life as the body of Christ. So our body life ought to tell the story of the gospel of God's grace in some form or fashion in our little corner of the world. And lastly, think about what it means to be a new community. We're sent out on mission with God, not simply sent out by God, but sent out by God to go with God to engage the world with the gospel. And at its deepest level, what that involves is not simply evangelism and outreach and door knocking and sending out flyers. It might involve all of that sort of thing. But at its deepest level, it involves spiritual warfare. And each and every one of us is called by God to engage in spiritual warfare. So we must be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. The enemies around us, the world, the flesh, and the devil, are unseen enemies. They lurk in every corner and nook and cranny of life. They're all over the place seeking to bring us down. Get it fixed in your heart and mind that the devil wants to kill you. Every one of you and your children and anyone who professes the name of Christ. He's a murderer, a thief, and a liar. We're engaged in spiritual warfare in the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that looks different for each and every one of us, but in order to engage in it, we are, we are instructed by the Spirit of God to put on the whole armor of God. And that doesn't mean play dress up and pretend you're a Roman soldier somewhere. It means that you clothe yourself in the Lord Jesus Christ every day. That you put on Christ and remember you are a baptized Christian, clothed in the armor of light. But the battle belongs to the Lord. He fights for you. He fights with you. And he calls you to fight with him in this battle. Why? So that we may be able to stand against the strategies and schemes of the devil. To stand our ground. And that's all we're called to do. Stand our ground where we are. 
Now, whatever else spiritual warfare might look like for you, let me encourage you to pray because it's something we can all do. Not all of us can stand up and preach and wave our hands and make loud noises with our voices, but all of us can pray. One of the most comforting, encouraging things for me that I hear from some of you each week is when you say, I prayed for you and Zach every day this week. We pray for you as well, but it's good to know that our people pray for us. Charles Spurgeon once was asked, what is the secret of your great ministry? And he said, my people pray for me. And this is what Paul says. We ought to pray at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication and pray for your ministers that words may be given to us in opening our mouths to boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel. As a new community sent out on mission with God, we're engaged in spiritual warfare. And that means that our missional practices ought to tell the story of the mystery of the gospel of God's grace in some form or fashion. So again, predestination leads to participation. You're being invited to join God in the cosmic work of the gospel in the world. Isn't that incredible? That he would take even us and invite us to be a part of his purposes. And why does he do this? Well, he does it because God wants all the best for you in Christ. He doesn't just establish the end. He establishes the means to the end. And he helps you reach your destination by various means of grace, by his spirit, his ministers, his sacraments, his word, his community, and even the circumstances of your life. You're being invited to do something that is so much greater than yourself. And you're being invited to do it and to participate in it in the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is for the glory of God and for your good. I encourage you with all your heart to devote yourselves to participating in this life of grace now and tomorrow and every day after until the Lord Jesus comes. As the prophet said, stand by the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it. Walk in it and find rest for your souls. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray.